0: Welcome to Rethinking Youth Ministry, a podcast from the Orange Students team.
1: Our mission is to help you, the youth leader, influence the next generation. And we do that through this podcast, other resources, and our weekly curriculum, XP3. If you'd like to learn more, check out orangestudents.com. But for now, let's get started with this week's episode. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Youth Ministry podcast. I am Brett, and I am so excited who I get to hang out with today. My buddy, George. What's up? My buddy, Kristen. Hey. And my buddy, Crystal. Hey there. How you guys doing today?
0: Great. Strongly awesome. trying to caffeinate.
1: Strongly trying <laughs> to <laughs>
2: caffeinate.
1: Great.
0: The words are off to
3: a good start.
2: <laughs> I'm just glad I had a Red Bull after lunch. So. All right. George is ready to go.
3: I can't caffeinate anymore because my eyes started twitching at about two PM. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll see how this turns out then. <laughs> so intense. Great. Fine, so today we're talking about this idea of why working with parents so often just doesn't feel like it's working in youth ministry and talking through some ideas on maybe what we can try differently or what we can do about that. And we've actually already had a couple other episodes where we talk specifically about the idea of of partnering with parents and and helping parents buy into what we're trying to do in our ministry. So we don't have to spend too much time on this if we don't want to, but I'd love to hear all of y'all's thoughts on why we should even bother trying to partner with parents when it comes to our youth ministries.
0: So Brett, I've told this story a few times, but when I first started youth ministry as a volunteer, um, I was just graduated out of high school. I knew that I wanted to go back into the youth ministry setting and do some discipleship efforts. And there are so many things that I did wrong. I mean, the list is very long, mm-hmm. but right up at the top of that list has to be this idea of parents because I just didn't know that these girls had parents. I mean, wow. I was meeting with them every week, but yeah. it never crossed my mind that somebody was driving them to the church or that someone picked them up unless they were late. And then I was like, hey, why haven't they disappeared yet? <laughs> I mean, there was just it wasn't on the radar at all. Yeah. And so when I look back, I want to go, I had no concept whatsoever of mm parents' existence or their importance in these girls' lives or what it really looked like. And it wasn't fast forward until I like, came into Orange and started working with Reggie and you know, meeting leaders, smart leaders like you all who kind of already understood this, mm. that helped me understand, hey, parents actually have more influence than you'll ever have as a church leader. And parents matter far more than you think, yeah. whether you think they're good parents, bad parents, engaged parents, helicopter parents, you know, disengaged parents, whatever. We go down a list. But regardless, they have more influence than you ever will. So first of all, I think it's important for us to all kind of own the fact that, hey, this is the person who's with a teenager over a long extended period of time with a significant amount of influence.
2: I think a big thing for me was probably the first graduating class that I got to really walk with them through. And just the fact that, oh, you're graduated. Oh, you're not, I can't say see you next year necessarily, or... You know how do I do in setting them up for you know what's after graduation? Yeah. Who are the people that are going to continue to always be in the lives of these students? And that's like parents. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. they're 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 going to be there. They're going to be working through stuff with them past graduation and everything. So I remember that moment um, so clearly. The first time again, that last youth group student was going to be there, and it was. That was huge for me. Yeah.
0: In a lot of scenarios, it's realizing that it's a mother or father who's going to be there on their wedding day. It's going to be a mother or father mm-hmm. who's there when they have their first child. It's going to be a mother or father who's there in these significant life moments, maybe after our influence fades. And in a lot of scenarios, we have to be honest, like more people go to counseling because of their relationship with mom or dad yeah. and their small yeah. group leader. <laughs> that alone should be an indicator yep. that parents have more influence for better, for worse, for good or bad on a person's life.
1: That would be... A good tweet, maybe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Makes me feel much better about the times I've messed up as a small group leader. Like, well, It's
0: nowhere near how yeah. you've messed up as a father, Brett. <laughs> oh,
1: okay. wow. I'm going to go uh, sing Cats in the Cradle <laughs> and uh, get my kids out of school early and take them to the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> That's
3: amazing. Kristen, I, I started similarly or with similar attitudes that, to the ones that you had which was I don't know why I would even need to partner with parents. In fact, I started leading in youth ministry around the same time I started teaching in public schools. Mm. And when you only see parents in parent conferences, it's Mm. generally not a positive experience. Mm. So over and over I just built a bank of negatives for parents, a bank of reasons that my only job was just to undo the damage that they were doing. And I had such unfair negative perceptions of parents, Mm. and it wasn't until – I started working with some other ministry leaders and some teachers who were parents of teenagers and started spending time with parents and going, hey, your job, I think, is way harder than I gave you Mm -hmm. credit for. Um, Mm -hmm. There's way more to it than I gave you credit for. It might be harder than my one hour a week with them.
0: (laughs) Crystal, I love that you bring that up because we share this educator thing in common. And I go back to the days I was teaching when I also butchered this concept of working with parents and because especially I mean as a 22 year old educator 23 year old educator and I knew everything these parents of teenagers should be doing in their world mm-hmm. to have a strong relationship with their teenager I mean I was such a parenting expert at that point in time having at no children of my I knew. own everything about <laughs>
3: everything yeah. Yeah.
0: Right, having no children of my own And there, but there is something about parenting in the teen years that we've all come to learn is really harder than any of us Mm -hmm. think and -hmm. any of us know. And if you go back to a few years ago, we were sitting in a room and Crystal, I know you were there. We'd assembled a bunch of teachers, high school teachers, principals, superintendent. We we had some people in the room. And when the topic of parents came up, especially with educators in middle school and high school, there was just a tendency to get really negative Hmm. for sure. I mean, so much so that it was like negativity, negativity, negativity. And these were great teachers. There's nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with them, but they were just, it's just as if we struggle alike in this area of they don't open our emails, they don't respond to our messages, we can't ever get a hold of them, they don't participate in... Helping us help their own child. Mm-hmm. And so this negativity gets bred really easily, both in ministry and in education.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I can relate to that in my experience in youth ministry. Uh, I was 21 when I jumped into full time youth ministry, uh, which was a huge mistake, Jeff Perkins. Uh, that was the guy that hired me. He's not listening, though. No, I was fine. But I mean, at 21, like you don't have any idea, like you relate to the students a thousand times better than you understand or relate to what their parents are actually going through. And
3: their parents are closer to your parents' age. Right. So it feels like I felt at least like I was working through some of the issues with my mom. Through their minds. <laughs> yeah. got, oh, I know what you're going through. My back, mom's the same
0: back way. Back to the
1: counseling thing. Yes.
0: And wow. let alone, I would hear stories as a small group leader about their parents through the perspective of a 15-year-old girl. So yep. probably not the least biased yeah. opinion.
1: Oh, gosh. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I know that so you know the, the role of a parent in my ministry was either, can you be a warm body and give me the ratios I need so I don't get in trouble for things? mm mm-hmm. um, or are you going to sign your kids up for bring your kids to provide snacks for these things mm-hmm. that I, that I want to do. Yes. And so it was, it was very much more of a parents. How can you, I'm trying to do all this stuff for your kids. Yes. How can you make yes. sure that you uh-huh. do what I need you to do so I can do all of this stuff
0: Absolutely. Yes. for your kids? Absolutely. And, ev-
1: and eventually that's, that started to evolve for me a little bit. And I, and I talk about this bridge analogy a lot when I talk about partnering with parents and, the next progression for me was this kind of revelation and understanding that okay, parents do matter and I, you know, I should be investing more in, in, in who parents are and helping them build their relationships with their students, all those kind of things. And so this idea of, okay, so we as the church, me as the as the student pastor and, and my volunteers, we need to build a bridge halfway to parents. And then we need to help parents understand how important it is for them to build a bridge halfway for us. And then we're going to meet in the middle and we're going to have communion and a worship night and it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but what happened there is we built the bridge halfway and then like small group leaders are just falling off the edge of the bridge because <laughs> they're like taking, yeah. you know, the leap of faith that the parents did build the bridge halfway to them. And then they're just getting really frustrated about mm-hmm. like, okay, we're, 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 trying to do this. We invited them here. We did these things and they just don't seem to be reciprocating.
3: I remember as a small group leader, that was sort of the model of our ministry and they said, you've got to go off-site to a restaurant and set up a parent meeting and invite all of your parents. And I was scared to death because I was like 23 years old. And I was like, I don't know what to say, but I'm going to oh. do it. And one parent showed up. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I was like, I will never do that yeah. again. But I know that feeling of like, oh, I built the bridge halfway, so y'all are coming, right? Yeah. And then they they didn't. Yeah.
2: I remember a moment where I took a long, hard look at the emails I was sending to my parents, this wall of text yeah. to a parent who has <laughs> 50 million things going on, begging them to get to my parent meeting and just wow, I had no idea the perspective that these parents had of me. yeah and, and what that did when it like uh, when this parent email went out, and I'm also generalizing all of my parents into one super long. Probably an effective email. Yeah. And I was slaving over that. Yeah.
1: And for me, for years, those meetings that i invited them to were just the live version like the live performance of the email that i already sent them <laughs> and then it was like why are they why are they not showing up to these to these <laughs> meetings where i perform the informational emails that i've been sending you and it or, was just totally the wrong
2: idea yep, and setting up an entire auditorium to be expecting it to be full of
1: um, bodies and instead it was full of chairs empty oh, chairs great yeah. awesome so and i also think one of the issues that i had Is that even when I did start to make an effort towards parents, in my mind, every family was the same. And so Mm -hmm. I was trying to reach out to all families as if they were, you know, mom, dad at home, like, you know, just kind of the normal traditional family that we might imagine. And actually, only 23 and a half percent of families in the US are defined by married couples living with their biological children. Wow. And so what, what should stats like that? mean for our ministries and the way that we're trying to partner with our parents and trying to connect with our parents.
3: I mean, I immediately think of the Facebook group that I have right now with my group of girls' parents and that typically when I post information, it begins with, hey, moms and dads. Yeah. And that immediately makes me think of, it might not be moms and dads on the other end of that Facebook group. Another way to say that might be parents and guardians.
0: Yeah. I think language really does matter. Sometimes when we say parents and guardians, it includes those who are caretakers, who are the number of parents who are currently grandparents, but are raising, mm-hmm. you know, their sons and daughters, sons and daughters, and an additional layer of who is that consistent adult.
1: But that feels so formal to me, like parents and guard, it almost sounds like that I don't have a relationship with them. So how, how do you marry the two? Like, I'm I'm trying to be aware of all the different situations there could be out there, but I don't want it to to seem so. I don't know. What if it was like, "Hey families?"
3: Yeah. Hey families. Just
1: sounds great. address
3: communication sure. to "Hey families."
0: Yeah. Sure. That
1: makes sense.
3: I think
0: the the key is you watch your language, yeah. right? You you watch your language in the stories you tell, in the presentations you give, in the images that you use. Yep. And it's it is very subtle. I think oftentimes if we're disconnected to how our language is being received, we'll forget mm-hmm. that that plural use of moms, mm-hmm. dads, yeah. Communicate something to families who might be living in a different reality and trying to navigate blended family issues, Mm -hmm. single parent issues, uh, guardianship, adoption, foster, you name it. So many different types of families today that language really does matter. I love the idea of statistics because it speaks not only to our language, but also how we filter what we think parents care about. Mm-hmm. And when I was looking at Pew Research a few years ago, trying to dive into the American family, there were things that caught my attention just about parental fears mm. and what parents said they were afraid of, that 59% of parents with an income of less than 30000 are afraid their child might be kidnapped or attacked as their primary fear. Mm. See, if I live oh, only cow. in my wow. context as a parent, it doesn't enter my head right now in my reality that my number one fear might be that someone's yeah. going to grab my child and run off with them. And yet the reality in our ministries is we're probably working with parents where their day-to-day reality is, I'm afraid that my kid may be shot, which was up there on the list um, in what Pew Research gathered, afraid my kid may be kidnapped, yeah. dealing with so many things that might not be on our personal radar. Yeah. But if you begin to look at the American families out there It changes the, what you think they care about most.
1: And so often in church, we're talking about, you know, meeting the needs of students or meeting the needs of families, but, but how often are the needs that we're actually meeting just assumed needs that we have that is probably completely biased and based on just our own experience and our own families, which might be completely different from the setting or the context that we're in.
0: Absolutely. And to come back to it, the language issue that Crystal was raising a minute ago, another stat that really bothered me, continues to bother me in youth ministry. And we've talked about on this podcast when it comes to sexual integrity. And one thing that jumped out was that if you look at the statistics of American families, 39% of our teenagers by the age of 12, not even teenagers, preteens. So 39% of 12-year-olds will have lived with a mother who's cohabitating in their home with a man that she's not married to, that number increases to 46% by 16 years old. So when we stand up and talk about purity and sexual relationships, we have to understand we're talking about 46% of those kids' moms. Wow. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't run it through that filter of, hey, they know we're talking about their mom, mom knows they're talking about your mom, and -hmm. just our language and how we communicate either honors a parent, respects a parent, and fosters a higher respect and relationship for that student with their parent, or we're actually causing something that That family is going to have to work through later on the back end.
1: So maybe step one for us when it comes to, you know, figuring out why are we struggling so much with this idea and moving toward a different place is understanding that sometimes our assumptions of the families we're trying to reach just aren't accurate. Mm. And so that's why it's coming up empty. That's why people aren't showing up or people aren't responding because what we're sending to them to try to connect with them just doesn't. Connect with. Them. I think
0: that's so true. Mm-hmm. And as I'm listening to you talk about that, I think about when you talk to somebody who doesn't work in youth ministry and they just don't understand teenagers. Because mm-hmm. you spend time with teenagers, you get teen culture, you understand teenagers in a different level. And you imagine yourself in that moment having to explain, no, understand what's really going on in teen culture. The same thing's true about parent culture. Mm-hmm. We have to be mm-hmm. students of what's happening in the lives of parents today. Mm-hmm. It's different than parenting looked like when our parents were raising us in the whatever yeah. decade you want to <laughs> fill in. <laughs> not calling anybody's, you know, not calling out anybody, but parenting changes, and we have to be students of parents and parents' realities just as much. And I love that you brought up assumptions because a few years ago, when I was doing interviews with um, leaders as part of the Phase Project. We would ask questions about a number of ministry issues, and one of them was parents. And it was really insightful, maybe, the assumptions that leaders all make about Hmm. parents. Even subtle assumptions like what Crystal was referencing about um, maybe that there are preferred kinds of families Mm -hmm. and that if parents were still married with their own biological children, meeting certain standards, those would be
3: better parents than maybe some other parents. I and, mean, we hear people use the term, they come from a good family. Yeah. Or a broken yeah. family. And, and what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And yeah. those assumptions, students feel those assumptions, parents feel those assumptions. And there is this thing that I think we we just kind of buy into that goes, you're not disqualified from parenting your child just because maybe your family looks different than you imagined it might, or your picture of family changed, or who knows, number mm-hmm. of different circumstances. Right. You're still qualified to be your kid's parent. Yeah. And first and foremost, I think as youth leaders, we can champion that in culture like nobody else to yeah. so just go, no, no, no. Don't disqualify yourself. We haven't disqualified you. You're still what your kid needs, and you can do this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think I think that there is that that misunderstanding, those, you know, those wrong assumptions of the families that we're trying to reach. I also think that there's even this lack of awareness sometimes that this is even part of our job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, when I, the, 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 first ministry role that I took, and to be honest, probably even, you know, the, like the next gen role that, you know, that I had at some point, I wonder if on the job description, there was ever anything that was talking about building relationships with, with parents.
3: Well, none of us signed up to be youth workers dreaming of conversations with parents. Right. Mm-hmm. I didn't sign mm-hmm. up to be a high school teacher dreaming of conversations with parents. <laughs> we signed up for those things because we like teenagers. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I get how it might be an unawareness, but I want to go back to something Kristen said about our, our assumptions coming from the perspective of a 15-year-old, because if I'm being honest, that's my story. When I th- thought about parents as a teacher, as a youth ministry worker... of the information I gathered came from their children. And when I think about how I saw the world at 15 and whether or not I would have trusted those students' descriptions of any other part of their lives, (laughs) right? I didn't trust their description of their boyfriend. I didn't trust their description of their teachers. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I took their description of their parents as the absolute gospel. And it might be worth our time to start looking for other sources of information for our assumptions outside of a 15-year-old's opinion of how their parents are doing as parents.
1: Well, I heard a story a long time ago about how every parent-teacher conference, the parent would stand up and say, I promise not to believe everything that your kids say about you if you promise not to believe everything your kids say about me, Mm -hmm. which is is totally accurate. Understanding, you know, obviously if students are coming to us and they're having these, you know, huge issues with their family life and everything like that. We don't just brush that off and we're like, oh, you're sure. just, you're blowing Absolutely. this out of proportion. Absolutely. Your parents are fine parents, but how do we have that healthy balance with not drawing conclusions that we probably shouldn't draw? The
3: assumption of there may be more to the story Yes, has always been helpful. Yeah. You can believe the student
0: and still hold open your, you know, your opinion of their mom or dad to go, even if Every single thing that they said was 100% true at face value, there might be context to this situation that we're missing just from an empathetic standpoint to go, you know, why might someone who really cares about their kid's future, you know, be in this, you know, living in this situation that they're describing?
2: Yeah. Yeah, because you can get into a lot of trouble with that. If student says blank, then parents must blank. Like it's not it's not a formula. It it's not transactional like that. It's a relationship that you know partnering with parents, helping parents, knowing their faces and names, like that's a relationship. Yeah. The if then gets you, wow, that's a lot.
0: And I want to speak to one other thing that I feel like we're almost kind of on the edge of, which is I think sometimes it's easy, and I've done this so many times to begin to see every parent through whatever your worst case scenario Mm -hmm. has been. (laughs) And you're like, no, 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 no. you don't understand parents. And you've got this one story of this one time with this one person. And it was just, you know, heartbreaking. You you go to trauma and heartbreak and it was just awful. And therefore, then we draw this conclusion that all parents are no longer worth our time. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think we just have to own that that's kind of faulty logic.
1: Yeah. For sure. So with this understanding that I have an array of different families, an array of different parents and, you know, styles of guardians or whoever it is that are represented with, with my students, and I'm trying to build a relationship with them. I'm trying to connect with them, to partner with them. How do I do that? If they're all, if they're, if they're all different if they're all in these different, I mean, do I need to know the the, the personal situations of all of my, of all, as, as, as the student pastor, as the, as the key leader of this ministry, do I need to know all of those things about all my families? What, How does it look like for me to start taking steps towards actually reaching them where they are?
3: I would say yes.
1: Okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes. You need to know the personal situation of every kid in your youth ministry. And if that's not possible because of the number, it's time to bring in some other adult voices. But Hmm. somebody, somebody in the ministry needs to know the family personally of every kid in the ministry. That's why we're such big fans of small Mm -hmm. groups driven Mm -hmm. ministries here, because that puts some volunteers or some other adults in the life of a kid who are coming alongside the parent, knowing their story, knowing their values, championing the family. Um, So, Maybe not you personally as the youth worker, but somebody, somebody, somebody should know.
2: Mm -hmm. As a youth worker, I remember it being so huge to at least have a pulse Mm
3: -hmm. on what's
2: going on out Mm -hmm. there. And and maybe it can't be every single parent, but there were parents that I was asking them questions. I was asking, Hey, what are some things that you need from me? What, what, what's going on in your kid's world? What's going on in your world? How are you connected What can I do to help? Um, So definitely I would still say have a pulse on what's going on out there, having the numbers
1: that you can call up. And I've seen ministries do that with anonymous surveys with parents before, Mm -hmm. where like once a year they just Mm -hmm. send like three questions to parents. It's completely anonymous, and it's just Mm -hmm. kind of some of those like, in, in your family, what are some of the biggest issues right now? You know, what would you want your student to learn most? Like whatever those kind of things are. Again, just to get a pulse on, okay, what's happening in our families? And if it's anonymous, you know, they're probably going to be way more honest than like, hey, Sharon, I just read your survey. Like what in the world's happening at your house? You know what I mean? They're not going to be honest in those kind of situations.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I love the idea too, though, as a small group leader, one of the best practices I stole from education world was at the beginning of every group, sending out an email to parents to say, hey, I'm gonna be your kid's small group leader. Can you tell me some things about your child? And mm. one thing I liked about it as an educator and as a small group leader was it let the parent know that I saw them as the expert on their child mm. and mm. that I was gonna respect them enough to take their opinion and consider that they understand their child, not just that I'm looking at their parenting through their kid's eyes, yeah. but I'm looking at their kid through, their, through a parent's eyes. And did everybody send it back? No. Right. You're never going to get 100% parent participation in anything you do. Just if that's your bar, just go ahead and know that that's not going to happen. But the ones that did send something back. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was, I mean, it moved the bar so far so fast because parents opened up and shared things that, you know, maybe their daughter wasn't going to share with me for two years.
1: Mm -hmm. Which I think leads me to this idea that there's almost two different ways we need to connect with parents or we need to think about in ministry is this idea of, how do how do I as the student pastor, or how do we as the church or the ministry communicate with parents? But also, how am I equipping and how am I setting up my small group leaders to really be the one that connects with mm-hmm. and connects with parents? Because the bulk emails that we're talking mm-hmm. about, with like, hey, here's what's going on this week, different things like that, I, mean, I think that those have a value; those have a purpose. But the value and the purpose of those is not to connect relationally with the people who yep. who, who, are, who are receiving mm-hmm. them. And going back to Crystal's point, I think it's really important that we kind of set the tone with parents that we don't expect ourselves as the student pastors to be the one who's going to build a, be able to build a relationship with every student and with every parent. And so how do we help set our, our small group leaders and our volunteers up to be able to step into those worlds?
3: So there's something that I've done with this group differently than I've done with any other small group I've led. I've been experimenting just to see if it worked. Typically in the past, the student pastor would stand on a stage and say, this is the small group leader. This is the parent. You two are going to work together. And that was the only time the relationship was defined. Mm -hmm. And the experiment that I've been playing with over the last three years with this group of girls is every time I contact a parent, I define the relationship. Mm -hmm. Hey, it's Crystal again. Remember, I'm your daughter's small group leader. And you and I are on the same team for the next three years, for the next two years, for the next one year, however long we had left. You and I are on the same team. One of my favorite parts of my job is that I get to tell them the same things that you're telling them. Mm -hmm. And I just over and over and over give that little speech. One of my favorite parts of my job is I get to tell them some of the same things that you're telling them. And sometimes I'll even ask, is there anything that you've been telling them lately that you would like for them to hear from another voice? Mm -hmm. And it just defines the relationship. And several of the parents have taken me up on it. And it's been so fun because Mm -hmm. that's never happened before that I've had private you know, uh, Instagram direct message threads yeah. for years going with these parents whose daughters don't know that their parents are feeding me language to say <laughs> in front of their daughters.
0: I just signed my daughters up for your small group.
3: <laughs> I would love to take yours. Tell me all the stories, Hensley. I want to know everything. I have a few things
0: I would like for you to say to them, though.
3: <laughs> but no, it's just been really helpful to define the relationship over and over and over because for some reason... I don't think they heard it at the parent meeting yeah. that we were on the same team. And it helped when I started saying we're on the same team.
1: And for what it's worth, most of our small group leaders probably aren't at the level that Crystal is.
3: <laughs> oh, and so my. You,
1: I mean, you know, I would like legendary small group status okay, over here. But, you know, I mean, this is, you know, for us sitting in this circle, that we live with this stuff. This is yep. what we eat, what we breathe, what we think about. And if you're listening to this, that's probably you too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have volunteers and you have small group leaders that want to have an influence in the next generation and they want to mm-hmm. have an impact in the kingdom, but they're, they don't think about this stuff. As much as we do so Mm -hmm. kind of going back to the awareness piece we have to help them be aware how many times do we recruit leaders and we talk about having an impact in the next generation and building relationships with students and all of these different things and we leave out the parent thing when we're talking about what their expectations what their kind of requirements to be a good small group leader are in the same way that that was probably left out for for some of us
3: or we say nebulous phrases like Partner with parents. And
1: then no never, direction. <laughs>
3: never talk about what that means, how to do that, what you say, just do okay. that.
2: Everything you said about expectations is great because it's not just painting the bullseye. We got to hit it. And when we mm-hmm. show up for the small group leaders and we encourage them, hey, if we want you to hit this bullseye and that's helping these students, and one of the best ways you
1: can do that is how you help your parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and what language do we give them? What instruction do we give them? And I think a lot of times the tension that I felt is I want to give my small group leaders everything they need to be effective, but I don't want them to feel like I'm micromanaging. Mm-hmm. But what I what I found out is they wanted anything I could give them and the yep. freedom for them to make it their own. So mm-hmm. I would send them emails with almost like scripts of like, hey, would you would you email your parents? something like this because because the chances of them opening it up from their small group leader whether that coming from youth at the crossing you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. it it is so much higher and then they get to personalize it they get to make it their own and hopefully that turns into Mm -hmm. some sort of so as long as especially you communicate with your leaders that hey you're free you know your group you know your parents better than i do But here's what we're trying to do, and here's something that might help you do that. The more we can give them the handles on those kind of things, the language pieces, and some direction.
0: And even beyond just those resources, it's also how we tell stories, right? The way that we tell stories in front of our small group leaders. I remember listening to Kevin Ragsdale, who was kind of overseeing uh, me when I was a small group leader, share stories about things other small group leaders had done to connect with parents that just I all of a sudden saw something I'd never seen before and thought, oh, wow, I love how they did that. And that's incredible. And that's what they're celebrating here in this ministry. And it just, it motivated me in a different way. And I think the way we tell stories, even to senior leadership matters. If these are the stories of small group leaders connecting with parents that you celebrate to even your leadership, it's another way to reinforce, Mm. hey, in youth ministry, I'm measuring my success based on some of the wins I see small group leaders having in relationships with parents Because I know life change will happen. And the more we tell that narrative over and over and over again to our executive leaders, um, to the church body at large, when we get a chance, to our other volunteers, there's something that's really inspiring about that.
1: And what we celebrate gets repeated. That was a quote. I don't even know where that came from (laughs) or who originally said it. But that was something in my last church, we talked about all the time what gets celebrated gets repeated. And so how are we telling those stories? What platforms? Mm-hmm. It, so in our meetings, how often are we telling those kind of stories? Mm-hmm. We had a Facebook group just for our small group leaders where every single time someone ever told me a story like that, I was like, can you put that on the Facebook group? Mm-hmm. Because I didn't want it to come from me. I wanted mm-hmm. it to come from you know their, their peers, fellow small group leaders. Hey, I did this. Here was the outcome. Mm-hmm. How cool.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, so we've talked about all these ways about maybe why why they're not working or kind of some of the barriers on how we can we can do this better. But let's get practical for a little bit. I wanna I wanna hear your thoughts on a couple different ideas that I think will help us better partner with parents and get better about being intentional about where parents are and, and getting them what they need where they are. To me, I think two of the biggest things, this isn't all encompassing, but I think two of the biggest things is this idea of building trust and resourcing parents. And I'd love to get some of your thoughts on those two ideas. So what do you think it looks like for us to build trust with the parents of our students in our ministry?
0: First of all, I love that you start there because I think so often in youth ministry, we skip that one. Mm. We go straight Mm -hmm. to resourcing parents and we miss the most essential point, which is a lot of parents don't trust us. I mean, we yeah. know that we're trustworthy, right? Because we know us. Yeah. We know. I mean, we like us. We yeah. like our listeners. Our listeners like us. We, we're all one big happy family. We trust us. But a lot of parents, the reality is, don't trust the church.
1: And when we, someone you don't trust resources you, it, you don't offensive. trust. Them. It feels yeah. like someone's telling you that they know what to do more than you know what to do.
0: Yes. And talk about a personal issue. It's somebody telling you how to parent your kid? Yep. Who's maybe never parented any kid like your kid before and never parented Mm -hmm. in the time and space you're parenting. It's easy to see how maybe it could come across a little wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And hopefully automatically there's a little bit of trust built in. Like, you know, this person cares about my kids and he's on staff at the church Mm -hmm. or she's on staff at the church. But there's so much more that we can do to build trust to really make this more Mm -hmm. effective.
3: My own experience with parents has been some of their personal history with the church and being mm-hmm. hurt by the church oh, yeah. meant that me being a part of the church or that's on staff point. at a church or yeah. connected to the church was not like not a how helpful good. Thing. Yeah, no. Man, that's it made true. me yeah. less trustworthy to them. So one of the things that I've worked really hard at being intentional about is just complimenting parents when their kid does something good. And mm. for some of them, I have to look really hard sometimes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Give me something. But
3: for the most part, I get to see their kids at their best. They're they're at our youth ministry because they want to be. There's something great about them that chances are their parents either coached in them or gave to them genetically. It's easy to shoot a quick text and be like, hey, high five on the parenting front. Emily was asking some great questions this week. Mm. High five on the parenting front. Man, you guys must be talking a lot about patience with others. I noticed that Kat was really patient. That mm. sort of thing is it's an easy win and an easy trust building mechanism to say that, hey, I notice you're doing good.
1: Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm.
3: And I think it's so infrequent, honestly, in our
0: culture for yep. somebody to come alongside of a parent, especially a parent of a teenager, and have those kind of words for them. Because the school, like we talked about earlier, tends to sometimes have some critical you know, thinking regarding parents. Uh, maybe there's a sports leader or... There's a grandparent looking in or somebody in that generation who's going, you're not parenting the way we used to parent in my generation. And there's just all kinds of voices looking in going, you're doing this wrong. You're messing this up. And whatever is broken in your child is probably your fault, Mm -hmm. mom or dad. (laughs) And that is just sort of the preeminent like feel of our culture. So to come in and speak something different and go, no, we see good in your kid and we're going to give you credit for the good Mm -hmm. in your kid. And the hope that we have for your kid is just a unique voice.
2: That's
1: great. So what else? How else can we build trust with parents? I think it's acknowledging
2: at times, well, their previous church experience might be that we dropped the ball as the church. We might have dropped the ball and um, we left them hanging after Kidman and we didn't pick it back mm. up. We mm. didn't hand off uh, as much as we talk about handoffs in you know, Kidman to Student Men. That needs to happen for parents of those students as well.
0: I think it's also important for us to evaluate our own motive Mm -hmm. as to why we're communicating with parents and talking with parents to begin with, because parents, just like teenagers, can get to they feel what your motive is Mm -hmm. in this. Mm -hmm. And is it really to change them? Is it really to get something from them? Or is it to help them truly win in their relationship with their kid regardless of whether or not something changes Mm -hmm. about their family? Mm -hmm. Because so many parents, I think, don't trust the church assuming the church is trying to change their family, change their parenting style, maybe devalue their relationship in one way or another, Mm -hmm. um, intentionally or unintentionally. Um, But there are things that maybe kind of raise just this, parents can be on guard. What Mm -hmm. kind of theology are you telling my kid? Uh, what kind of things are you going to say that might affect our relationship to either help it or hurt it? And those things are valid concerns on behalf of a parent, and that, re- that responsibility is on us to alleviate those fears. Yeah,
2: yeah. And I think to that point and to kind of go back a little bit to communicating clearly, we also have to think about the parents that don't have any idea how to Take this whole faith thing and you know package it in a way for their kids for the very first time. They don't know what a parent cue is supposed to do. They don't know what uh, why you're even reaching out at times. Yeah. Um, so motives that's huge and clarifying that.
1: Yeah, and to, to kind of piggyback on that, you know what what I often tell if I'm talking to you know t- to student pastors and they're like we're not really doing anything with parents at all. I say the easiest way to start building trust with parents is that you start to communicate mm-hmm. consistently and clearly and concisely.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, <laughs> like the last one. Yes, Con- concisely. <laughs>
3: um,
1: and so, one of the things that I encourage every every group to do is there should be a, a, a weekly email that gets sent to to your high school parents, your middle school parents, however you want to structure however you want to structure that. That says, here's what's going on this week. And it's just some really clear things. Here's what's going on this week. Here's what's coming up. And that's where you can talk about, you know, fall retreat and you can talk about like, hey, save the date for, you know, camp next year or whatever. And then there can be, you know, if you've got some sort of resource or a blog or if you've got a podcast or like a funny meme or something in there. But it's something that comes every single week that communicates clearly with them. That's easy for them to read. That's easy for them to search back for because people don't read your emails when they get them. People read your emails when they need them. And so you have to be able to title them in strategic ways, send them at the same time every single week, because just that consistent communication is going to start to build some trust that, hey, we care to communicate with you. And we're not just assuming that you know everything that's going on and putting the ball in your court to always you know be looking for the answers. We want to give them to you every single week.
0: Consistency is great for building trust. I think it's also important to evaluate our expectation of that because sometimes um, listening to educators, listening to church leaders, when we begin to expect that parents are reading the email, because I mean, after all, we spent a lot of time on it. Right. It took us a lot of time and a lot of effort. And we gave our life to this, to communicate to them. There can be this expectation that why wouldn't parents be reading this? And I think... It helps when we can just take that off the table and go, no, we're sending this email because we're serving parents and we're being generous with parents and there is no expectation on their end. Back to that bridge analogy. We're just building the bridge all the way across. So someday they'll trust us Mm -hmm. whether or not they read it. When we send it out, that's okay. We're just doing this because we want to prove that we can be trusted. And
1: some Mm -hmm. of that goes back to the motive. What, what is my motive for, for sending this out if I'm honest? A lot of us we're sending the email out about the deadline for the retreat because we want more people there because Mm -hmm. if more people there we feel better about ourselves now that's not necessarily how we would probably verbally process this is why i'm sending this email Mm -hmm. but if we're honest that there are things like that that are probably part of it and so really evaluating okay when i'm trying to communicate to parents what am i trying to communicate and why am i trying to communicate those things And in what ways am I trying to get creative about communicating with parents? I see the way that some student pastors, you know, they text like, you know, 60 second update videos, you know, to parents Mm -hmm. or, you know, they've got some really creative ideas on how they're trying to connect with parents on social media and on Facebook. And I think that those go to build trust towards parents when they see that we're making an effort not to have them come to us digitally or electronically or technically or whatever it is, but we're trying to meet them where they are and trying to communicate with them in ways that is palatable and easy for them. I think that it just builds that trust meter.
3: And one of the things that I I heard in what you were saying that is tricky is that we have to communicate in a variety of different
1: ways. Because
3: Mm -hmm. they may or may not read the email, but I'm also thinking about the parents in the ministry where I am right now. They were born in different generations from each other. Yes. Mm -hmm. So some of them are um, millennials. who had children earlier in life and their kids are teenagers now and some of them are Gen Xers Mm -hmm. and some of them are beyond almost because they had children later in life and that means that their preferred avenue of communication is different. Some of them don't care at all about my adorable little Facebook group (laughs) and some of them live for it. Yeah. And some of them will read the text message and some of them want a phone call and so communicating in a variety of ways, maybe the only way that we actually get information to them. Yeah.
0: I love that so much. Crystal, we get this question all the time when we're out talking with church leaders and having these conversations of, hey, so should we communicate with parents through email or through a printed handout or, and it's always, yes, yes, yes. yes. (laughs) (laughs) Try all the avenues. Mm -hmm. None of them will work completely, Mm -hmm. but all of them collectively will work better uh, because it's all, all the things. And another thing that I think that matters when we talk about building trust is how we train our communicators. Whether mm. you're the communicator in front of your students, or you ha- maybe have other people who are communicating, yep. but it's just so important that we communicate a high value, a high respect, high regard for parents everywhere. Yeah, because there is a mm. tendency that's just—it's so easy. It's like this low-hanging fruit. It's so easy to grab. When you talk to students and you're trying to build a tension on something Mm -hmm. to go for, oh, there's tension in your relationship with mom or dad or stepdad or mom's boyfriend or whoever, you just grab it because it's Mm -hmm. right there. But if we consistently reference parents as the tension in a kid's Mm -hmm. life and not reference them as the hero in their kid's life or a positive influence or someone Mm -hmm. that we're championing, again, we're sending that subtle message that just erodes trust because it's not like parents don't know what our perspective is, and Mm -hmm. how we talk about them.
1: That's good.
3: Kristen, that brings up such a good point because we can do everything right to build trust. We can send all the emails, all the Facebook, all the texts, communicate everything perfectly from the stage and in person, and we can lose it all in a second. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. typically, it may not even be those of us on staff or working with the church who lose trust, but a small group leader who in... Five second Mm -hmm. span agrees with a student when they say, My mom's an idiot, my dad's a Mm -hmm. moron, my parents Mm -hmm. are unfair, they're ridiculous. And the minute we agree with them Mm -hmm. or nod our heads or go, Yeah, you're, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, yeah, that was kind of ridiculous. We've lost the ball game Mm -hmm. because as soon as they get home and they're in a fight with that parent, they will rat us.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, Dave agrees with me, mom.
3: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So we have to be so careful to train our leaders that we never, ever, ever join a student against their parent, even when the parent's not around.
1: That's good. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's move on to this next idea of, of resourcing parents. So two ways that we can begin to partner better with parents, no matter where they are, we can build trust with them and then we can resource them. So once we've built the trust, what does it look like for us to try and resource parents?
3: Well, I think we mentioned earlier that that's tricky because if you don't have a relationship with a parent and then you offer them the number of a counselor, that's Mm -hmm. a really personal recommendation to make for somebody you don't have a relationship with. So I would say, you know, let's make sure that we know their family and know their story well enough to even offer that or maybe even wait till they ask. But eventually they will because the teenage years are hard. Mm. (laughs) Their crisis is pretty common with teenagers and when they ask... I just think it's important that we have a list of resources ready to go, yep. a list of phone numbers ready to hand them of people that have been vetted and trusted and that we trust, and that we hand it to them personally or that we hand it to them as a group pretty consistently. Yeah, there's a, a counseling program that I pretty consistently just put their number in our parent Facebook group, just to make sure that they have it.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. just being ready and on the ball. I, I think it's fascinating too when it comes to resources. It just seems like, you know, at some point similar to how parenting communication just disappears at a certain point. I think the same thing could be said for resources. Some point in elementary school, uh, it just starts to disappear. So having it ready and available is a way for us to live up to the promise that, hey, we are there for you. Um, It's also a way that we can help support them through all of the phases uh, in a kid's life. Absolutely.
0: So true. I think in culture in general, parenting resources just stop. Somewhere around fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, they they tend to kind of slow down. Yeah. By the time you get into high school, there yeah. aren't a lot of organizations out there going, hey, I want to help you parent your 11th grader. And yet, really, that relationship still matters. And it's actually still a lot of work. And yeah. parents don't feel equipped for that journey. If you kind of start talking to families, mm-hmm. there's still a lot of questions. Sure, it looks different. Um, But there's still a need for somebody to come along Mm -hmm. and go, okay, here's how you can navigate this new phase of your parenting journey.
2: Or it turns super topical where it it becomes, oh, books on this issue, this issue, this issue, this issue, instead of helping parents to realize, oh, my kid's in the middle school phase or my kid is Mm -hmm. in this phase and this is how
1: I can meet my kid where they're at. Mm -hmm. And you've heard us use the word phase a lot. If you're not super familiar with Mm -hmm. with us at Orange, we have this thing called Phase Project with Kristen. I think you've been sort of involved in (laughs) a little Um, bit in in some ways. Uh, You can check out the show notes. Uh, There's this amazing book called It's Just a Phase, so don't miss it. And then there are these phase guides that basically follow along every single age and every single year. Mm -hmm. And then those phase guides even have like phase summaries and phase cards that when we're talking about resourcing – churches and resourcing parents, these are unbelievable resources. And mm-hmm. we've seen people take like the phase summary guides and the phase cards, and they make these resource centers for the parents that are that are in their church. So when you hear us talk about phase, it's something that we are pretty passionate about around here. And so when you hear us talk about phases, you know, check out those show notes, because there is just a smorgasbord of helpful resources, not just for you as a student pastor, as a student leader, even as a volunteer, but for your parents and the way that you're trying to resource parents?
0: Yeah. One of the things that we really believed in the beginning of the FACE project was that we wanted there to be this distinctive, because just like George is talking about, so many parent resources Mm -hmm. kind of stop. They end around age 10. Um, I know when I first started my parenting journey. I signed up for babysitter.com. They were sending me weekly emails about my two-year-old and about my three-year-old. But then those kind of just end. And you're left as a mom or dad going, okay, wait, did they just stop growing? Did they stop changing? You know, evidence in my home suggests otherwise. Um, there's not a lot out there. And even when you get back to some of the basic tenets of child development, you look at Piaget and Kohlberg and Erickson, a lot of it groups adolescence into one bucket. Yep. And so you get to about the age of 10 and 10 to 25 is all the same bucket. And That was
1: Crystal's best- Sunday school class growing yeah, up. Yeah, that was the, the Sunday
3: school class I grew up in was ages 11 to 26. Well, they no kidding i oh, wow. read developmental theorists, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but
0: we know there's a difference oh, between yeah. a sixth grader and an eighth grader. In fact, when we first started phase, I love to tell this story, but we grouped seventh and eighth graders together. And it was our good friend, uh, Katie Edwards, who called us up and said, Hey, I think you made a mistake because seventh graders and eighth graders are nothing alike. And so we were like, okay, great, Katie, tell us more about that. And we dove in, we sure enough, we separated seventh and eighth because Katie was right and we were wrong and it was really good information to have. (laughs) Good job, Katie. But we needed to go, okay, no, adolescence is still a journey and Mm -hmm. kids are changing and parents feel the changes so much. And that has gained traction for some of the parent meetings that we talk about. Um, I know as a small group leader, going through the phase project, I did an experiment where we invited 10th grade parents over to have a lunch Mm. at our house and basically just said, Hey, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, you're just a few months into 10th grade, but it's a pretty tough year. Mm -hmm. If you want to talk about 10th grade together and some of the challenges that are coming, we would love to do that. And I mean, it was surprising to me. We Mm -hmm. had a better turnout than we'd had on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Dads that came, some parents who came that didn't know that we were a church at Mm -hmm. all, but, Mm -hmm there was a, we were tapping into a tension of, hey, 10th grade is hard and we want to help you with this resource and this content that will redefine your relationship yeah. in the phase that you're in right now.
3: Well, it just seems like there's something so freeing because 10th grade is one of the hard ones, mm-hmm. particularly before you get to Christmas and they're just horrible. Um, <laughs> To say to a parent that just because your kid is behaving badly doesn't mean I believe you're a bad parent. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're yes. actually being normal. And when we acknowledge yes. that, it's just like everybody's shoulders go down in the room and mm-hmm. it's like, oh, okay, yeah. this is an okay place. This is a safe place now.
0: And sometimes saying, hey, did you know that your daughter is a pleasant human being when she's around other people? Because <laughs> yes. a, a thread that we hear sometimes from parents <laughs> is just this confession that, hey, we get the very worst Amen. version it's at so home. so true. And it's helpful to hear from adults that are like, I, no, I actually like your kid. Yeah. They're pretty decent when they're not at home.
1: Pretty yeah. decent. They're
0: pretty <laughs> decent.
1: Do you hear that? She called you pretty decent, honey. <laughs> <Nice job. laughs> All right, what about some other ideas? What are some other ways that we can resource parents where they are?
3: I think connecting them to other parents Ooh, is yep. really, really helpful. I remember a training I sat through at the very uh, beginning of a ninth grade small group where they brought up a senior small group and the the leader, the small group leader had done an excellent job of connecting the parents to each other mm. and they became each other's support system. They became honest with each other. They were looking at, and they told all these stories of how their kid being in youth ministry was better for them as parents than it was even for their kid. Wow. And I think sometimes we miss out on the power of having, watching one parent say to another parent, me
1: too. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm. And I think connecting them to the parents and connecting the parents, we've already talked about this, to to their students' small group leader. Mm -hmm. And it's more important for the parents of your students to be connected to their their kids' small group leader than for them to be connected to you. Mm -hmm. And I think that so often we feel like we need to be the ones on stage. We need to be the ones that are doing all the communicating. The more that you can offload that onto your small group leaders, not giving in a bunch of extra work to do, it's probably even more work for you, Mm -hmm. but being able to build that bridge more for the parents and the small group leader than to you is a huge resource. And then you're sure to make sure that your small group leaders know any support or help you need. Okay. A parent came to you and they talked about your students going through this and you don't know what to do. Come talk to me. We'll, we'll walk through, Mm -hmm. we'll figure this out.
0: I love, The idea of making sure parents have somebody in their court, because that's so important in the teenage years. There's this thing that I've kind of observed over the last few years, and this is a hypothesis, I don't know if it's true, but if you look at Facebook, where a lot of parent conversation happens, mm-hmm. um, a lot of parents in the younger years do crowdsourcing oh, yeah. data. Mm. It's like, how do you get your baby to sleep through the night? Yep. How do you get your toddler to eat vegetables? How do you you know, deal with homework situations? There's so many things that we crowdsource. Does anybody know of a good swim league in the yeah. area? But somewhere around the age of like 13, 14, there's a lot less parent crowdsourcing information. And just... This is just a guess, um, and this is based on being a small group leader and being connected to youth ministry conversations, but the issues get a lot harder yeah. and a lot harder to talk about and go online, and nobody's going to crowdsource like, you know,
3: <laughs> I don't know. how I don't, do I get my teenager to stop making out on the living room couch? It's creeping us all out. No one says yeah, that.
0: Nobody's yeah. gonna, there's just a whole lot of issues. There's You're gonna no go- way
1: to crowdsource it without... <laughs> Like making your your kid kid. look terrible.
0: (laughs) Or making you look terrible or just this massive shame fest. And so we don't Mm -hmm. know how to go to anybody and go like, Mm -hmm. how do I knock on your door and say, okay, uh, I don't know how to talk to my kid about the pornography addiction that I've discovered is going on inside of my own home. Because how do you start that conversation? And Mm -hmm. so connecting them to another parent in the same phase over time can create a safe enough place for parents to talk about issues that are really, really challenging. And
1: that, that going back to the bridge analogy earlier that I use for so long in ministry, I thought, Hey, we're going to build a bridge halfway to parents. Parents are going to build, build the bridge halfway to us. And it doesn't work. And reality parent ministry is building a bridge all the way to parents and they still often choose not to cross it until crisis hits but when when something like that does happen they discover some sort of an addiction or they find out that their kids are cutting or they're getting a divorce or you know they come out or something along those lines We want to be at the top of their list of people that they trust, Mm -hmm. that they can go to, maybe not even necessarily for answers, but just for prayer, for support, just for some stability Mm -hmm. in their life. And sometimes that's all building the bridge is. We put the years and the years and the years of building the trust, building the trust, resourcing, resourcing for that moment, maybe their senior year where the parent finally comes to us and says, I just found out this, what do I do?
0: Right. There are more parents than I think we suspect who are looking for someone they can trust to help them with the issues that they're carrying, but they're just so deeply personal and so difficult. It's hard to know where to turn.
1: Yeah. All right, so what I'm hearing with this idea of, you know, why maybe partnering with parents isn't working for us is that sometimes we're operating from the wrong assumptions. Sometimes we're a little bit too narrow in what we're trying to do or, or who we think that we're trying to reach. Sometimes we're assuming that everything should be coming from from us or the ministry and not necessarily maybe some volunteers or small group leaders that have more of a a personal relationship. But I do think that there are some really easy and clear steps that we can take forward, even if we're really frustrated with how our parent ministry is, is going right now. The two things we talked about, about building trust and starting to resource parents in some ways that ultimately, in my experience, have led me to realize that even in the moments where I feel like nothing is working with the way that I'm trying to partner with parents, so much of partnering with parents is us feeling like we're doing a lot of the work and then just waiting for parents to respond, which can feel really frustrating sometimes Mm -hmm. because we feel like that we're inviting them to something. We've all been in places where we're inviting people to something and people don't show up. And sometimes that's just what parent ministry feels like sometimes. But then you get that phone call from a parent whose student has just committed suicide that you didn't know that you ever even had a significant conversation with. But you are somebody that they had on their list at the top of their list to deal with the most difficult situations because of the time and the effort and the energy that you've put in to building that trust. So it's so easy for us in those moments and in those emails and in those meetings where people don't show up for that you wish did. Yes, could we, should we get a little more creative with some of those things? Could we shift some things around and do things differently? Yeah, all those things can happen, but it's so easy for us in those moments to feel discouraged and frustrated that nobody's paying attention, that nobody's listening. I shouldn't even bother with doing this, but there's so much more that's happening there and the trust that we're building. So even if it feels like it doesn't matter. Just let us encourage you that it does matter. Yes, that doesn't mean you shouldn't switch some things up, but keep doing what you're doing. Keep trying to get better and sharper at the craft that you're trying to reach out to parents and reach out to them specifically where you are. And eventually you will start to see some of the fruit that will come out of that.
0: Brett, there's so much of this that comes back to a mindset for me. When I first started youth ministry, it was parents not on the radar. It yeah. moved quickly into parents are a negative force to overcome. But when we shift the way we think about parents, it will shift the way that we view our success in mm. this parent ministry mm-hmm. in the same way that when you first started leading a group of eighth graders, And you went, okay, discipleship with eighth graders is impossible. Mm. There is no life change. This is ridiculous. All that we do is play games and tell jokes, and these guys are not paying attention. I mean, we've all had that moment in youth ministry. And when you stick with it for the long haul and you don't give up in youth ministry, you don't get suddenly magically eighth graders that are coming up to you going oh this you know spiritual truth was just transformed my mind today and i'm completely new human uh no you see that years later and the same is true for parent ministry Mm -hmm. when we change our perspective about parents when we stay committed over the long haul we're going to hear the stories like you're talking about and that is when we'll know okay this is working yeah we just had to stick with it longer stay more committed, lean into the tension and not disengage as soon as we saw evidence that maybe it wasn't working and it's not worth the effort anyway.
1: Yep. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us on this one. George and Crystal, thank you as always for your input. And and thank you all so much for joining us for the Rethinking Youth Ministry podcast. And our conversation about partnering with parents doesn't have to stop here. Uh, in fact, this topic is actually something that comes up pretty frequently on our Facebook group. So if you wanna join that conversation with us, you can just search Orange Students on Facebook or just visit our show notes at rethinkingym.org for a link to that. And, and that's also where you can find all of these resources that we've been talking about in this episode. And until next time, thanks for listening.